the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. More often than not, we tend to feel like we are going it alone, don't we? Where is God when we need Him? And more often than not, times are we don't even think about it like that. The Lord will fight for you. That's the title of today's message, up next on Walk Through the Word. As God's character is revealed to us through the study of His Word, we begin to discover the simple truth that He is absolutely crazy about us. As John puts it, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. In Exodus, we see how much He loves the children of Israel, and we invite you to open your Bible to chapter 14. Follow along as Pastor Kent Presto brings us today's edition of Walk Through the Word from North Creek Church in Walnut Creek, online at northcreek.org or walkthroughtheword.com. With today's program, here's Ken. By now, Pharaoh should have known to humble himself under the mighty hand of God so that God might lift him up out of the devastation he had brought on him. But he will not do it. God will oppose Pharaoh because he is proud in hardening his heart. God is ensuring that Pharaoh will prove himself at the Red Sea to be who he's been from the very beginning, God's enemy. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so in assuming the posture of a proud king, verse five says, he was told that the people had fled and his mind and the mind of his servants was changed. You see in verses five through nine, God's enemy changing, choosing and chasing, changing. Verse five says that their hearts changed. And as Pharaoh's heart goes, so goes the royal court's heart collectively. All of them changed their mind about letting Israel go. So they say effectively in the Hebrew, man, we blew it. We messed up. We dropped the ball, letting the people of Israel go. Now, I should probably go ahead and let you know at this point that that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. That's kind of my colloquial summarization of what's going on here in the language, okay? There is definitely an urgency behind what they're saying in verse 5. They have changed their mind. They were beaten into submission, and now they are just fired up in aggression. All of the old animus is, is back and then some. Now, all of us can have a change of heart every once in a while, and that can lead to any number of different actions that we choose. But when Pharaoh changes his heart here, it resulted in chosen weapons, chosen weapons. With a change of heart comes chosen weapons. Now, some military background would be helpful here for those of you who enjoy this kind of thing. For those of you who don't, just bear with me. First, you do need to understand that chariots were the most formidable military weapon in this time. The most formidable military weapon in this time. They came to be prized so much in battle that, that eventually thousands of them will be used and deployed in various important battles down through ancient Near Eastern history. 
The fact here that 600 choice or first-rate chariots are deployed highlights that Pharaoh's military valued modernized weaponry. They were modernizing their army. They were cutting edge. They were world-class. Second, we must understand that Egypt's military was the most feared in the world at this time. They were, you could say, a lot like our military today. And here is Pharaoh deploying his most advanced military units, his most advanced technology against God's people. Third, you must understand that of all the chariots, that all the chariots had chariot officers over them, indicating that the core of Egypt's leadership at the military level, the core of Egypt's well-trained world-class army was engaged in this pursuit. This is not a, a small contingent. This is not a task force. This is not a small group. This was unleashing the full-blown military arsenal of the mightiest nation in the world at the time against the people of God, who, by the way, several days earlier were slaves in this country. Add all that together, and on paper, you have the beginning of a very bad day for this fledgling nation that had nowhere to escape. And this army is going to charge hard. They are going to chase after them hard. The word for pursue in verses 8 and 9 is the word for charge. I mean, there is a furious pace being maintained here. Pharaoh is implementing it, but he's the most powerful man on the earth. But don't miss God implementing it too, the most powerful being in the universe. The whole paragraph is about Pharaoh, by the way. Have you noticed verses 5 through 9? (laughs) except that smack dab in the middle of the paragraph is that little phrase in verse eight. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All that Pharaoh is doing has its origin in his heart. The heart that God controls. Friends, here's another illustration of the truth of Proverbs four, verse 23. That says that we should guard our heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life from it flow all the issues of life. Everything Pharaoh's doing is flowing out of what's happening on the inside. And by the way, as you're seeing everything flowing out of him and what's going on inside of him, it really does seem as if Pharaoh is a good kind of antichrist figure, doesn't it? That from top to bottom, he's like the consummate enemy of God's people with his changed heart with his chosen weapons, with his chasing hard after God's people. And by the way, certainly it's not going to take him very long to catch up to God's people, right? And in fact, when you see in verse 10, Pharaoh drawing near, um, yikes, you would assume that then God's people are going to dig in their heels and get ready for war, right? I mean, isn't that what you should assume? Well, you'd be wrong if you assume that. Look at verses 10 through 12. And we see the next move in the text being the response from God's people. And the response from God's people is that they cry out and complain. They cry out and they complain. I mean, God had spoken generally, hadn't he, of taking them up into the land of promise. They had that promise given to them over and over and over again. And once they left slavery, it, it seems that probably, and I'm sure that you and I would have thought the same thing, once we got out of Egypt, that the coast was clear, that we were done with opposition, that we were done with danger. 
God had come through and we had been delivered, past tense. Surely God's people thought they had nothing more to worry about. But they had no idea about the journey in front of them today. And honestly, if the greatest fighting force in the world was racing toward you, and you were on foot with your family in tow, locked in by the Red Sea on one side and the wilderness on the other side, would you have done much differently than they did in verses 10 through 12? Let's not blast away the people of God from of old. Let's put ourselves in their place. We probably would have done the same thing. In fact, doesn't it seem like one of the ways to humble yourself before the Lord is to identify not with the people who are succeeding in the passage, but with God's people who are actually falling prey to their own sin and to recognize that you very much and I very much would have done the same. I find verses 10 through 12 to be very convicting right now, right now in the month of May in the Bay area, in the shelter in place, I find verses 10 through 12 very convicting to me because the first thing they do is in verse 10. They cry out to God. They cry out to the Lord. That is excellent. Man, good job. You thought to pray. You looked to cry out to the Lord. That's always the right place to start. But then immediately their crying is crushed by their complaining in verses 11 through 12. And isn't that the move of our own hearts so often in life? When put into the pressure cooker with our backs up against the wall, don't we frequently cry out to God initially and then get, just crush our crying out to God, crush our prayer life with a load of complaining on the back end? Or maybe you're different than me. So let's take a closer look at their complaining against Moses. And really, it's just complaining against God because there's so much good here to humble us. During this month, in the Bay Area, in our own crisis. Notice what they do in verse 11a. They say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away? Is it because you're, there are no graves in Egypt? This is meant to be very biting. This is consummate expression of sarcasm, of mocking Moses, God's leader, and thereby kind of in a backhanded way, mocking God. The question being asked in this complaint is what? You think there's not enough graves in Egypt to make us come out here and dig our own? Mocking, sarcasm. It's, it's such a standard component of complaining, isn't it? Complaining bites at others. There's a lot of that going on right now, isn't there? Notice what else happens in 11b with complaining, another component of it. Complaining blows the situation out of proportion. Blows the situation out of proportion. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? To die in the wilderness? Let me ask you a question. Is that what was going to happen? Was Pharaoh coming to slaughter the entire slave force that he had just got done letting go? Newsflash. No. No, he absolutely wasn't doing that. The, the Israelites' complaint was unhinged from a simple analysis of the situation, which would have told them they're not coming to slaughter us. They're coming to enslave us again. But no, 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 no. Complaining blows the situation out of proportion. It makes the danger greater than it actually is. We're all going to die. That's the complaint. You, you lose your sense of proportion. You lose your ability to reason in the situation. And you make mountains out of molehills in the crisis. And listen, no crisis needs more help to become a bigger crisis. But complaining 
makes the crisis appear even bigger, which leads, by the way, in our context recently, into a full-blown panic. People who refuse to complain are way less prone to panic. People who panic probably get there through the well-worn path of complaining. Complaining bites at others. It blows the situation out of proportion. But notice in verse 11 at the very end that complaining blames others. Complaining blames others. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? I mean, basically what they're saying is, why did you do this, Moses? Why did you do this? Why did you do this to us to bring us out into the wilderness to die here? What have you done to us? See, that's just blaming. That's assuming that none of them wanted to really go out of slavery. They all were enjoying the good life and they all wanted to stay there. None of them wanted to leave. Right. Yeah. Like this decision was just Moses' decision over against all the other will of the people. Right. Of course. Yeah. But you know what complaining does though is it blames other people. You're all in when the going gets good, but then when the going goes rough, you're out and you start blaming other people. I never wanted this anyways. I never thought this was a good idea. I never thought this was a big, I never thought this was a big deal or whatever it happens to be. There's a lot of that going on right now, isn't there? There's a whole world of people who are looking for somebody to blame. And the last person they'll probably blame is themselves, which is just how complaining works. Another component of blaming is found in verse 12. This is a classic, man. I mean, you, you don't even have to teach toddlers this. Toddlers know how to do this as soon as they can say the word. Because complaining brags about itself. It brags about itself. It says something like this. I told you so. I told you this would happen. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says it better than that. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Didn't we say this to you back then? That you're going to get us into trouble if you take us out of Egypt? Wait a minute. Time. Time out. <laughs> okay. So really, honestly, the, the people of God thought that they were not in trouble in Egypt. And by Moses taking them out of slavery, that he would be taking them into trouble out of Egypt? Is that really what they thought? I mean, go back to chapter 5. Go back to chapter 6. And see about the desperate cry of the people of Israel under the yoke of Egypt. And be reminded that when they say, I told you this would happen, they are absolutely lying in their bragging. In fact, many times when people say, I told you so, they didn't. They didn't. They're just manufacturing. It's just another expression of, com of a complaining heart to brag on itself. I knew this was going to happen, and I told you so. There's a lot of that going on right now too, isn't there? A lot of that going on in the media. A lot of that going on in politics. Is there a lot of that going on in our church? Maybe in your own heart? The last component of complaining is found at the end of verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Listen to what they said. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Oh my goodness. Look at the end of that. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. <laughs> I mean, this is like, you know what the word serve is now by now, don't you? The word serve is very closely related to the word worship. 
in, in the book of Exodus. And so this is not a term that's just like, you know, making bricks. This is a term of like subjection, submission, service, uh, slavery, and even elements of like worship. This is where complaining turns to blasphemy. Complaining here, blaspheming God. Saying things like, we were better off in slavery than we are with this newfound freedom that you've given to us, God. I mean, at its worst in the Christian life, people, when they get into a crisis or get their backs up against a wall, say things like this or think things like this. Life was so much better before I was a Christian. And now that I'm a Christian, I'm getting drilled. What's going on with that, God? That's a dangerous place to be. That is, by the way, in the flow of complaining, that's where complaining takes you eventually. I think a lot of us might think, or eh, that's not true. Maybe some of us might think that complaining is not a big deal. Ah, I'm a little bit sarcastic. Ah, whatever. It's not a big deal. I knock on people here and there, whatever. It's just, it's not a big deal. Well, sarcastic complaining is the first step. I don't know that this is, this is supposed to be seen as a process. I don't, I'm not suggesting that. I don't think the narrative is suggesting that, but certainly you could see how complaining ends where it ends here with blaspheming God saying I was better off before salvation than I am now. And by the way, I got to tell you, I'm not sure where you're at, but you're looking at the screen that I'm looking at here. And I'm greatly convicted by this in this COVID crisis. Some of us have started to give vent to this exact stuff on the screen. I've heard it. I've read it. I've felt it. I've said it. The biting, the blowing things out of proportion, the blaming, the bragging. It can all culminate if we're not careful in blaspheming saying, God, your path is not the best path. Some of us need to repent today. You are sinfully complaining about the path that God has you on and you need to repent. I need to repent over against all this crying and complaining in the passage from the people of God stands one man, one man who is God's leader and God's leader is not crying and he's not complaining. Notice the contrast. God's leader, Moses in verses 13 and 14 is commanding the truth and he is comforting the saints. He is commanding with the truth and he is comforting the saints. And that's what a good leader does. That's what a mature Christian does. He does not blast the people back. No, he commands them and then he comforts them with the truth of who God is and what he's doing. First of all, he commands them. He says, don't be afraid. That's not a, an encouragement. Like, hey, can I just encourage you brothers and sisters out there that you might want to consider? You don't have to if you don't want to. I don't want to hurt you. But, but if you want to join me, you don't have to be afraid right now. It's just an option for you to consider. Now, that's actually not what he's saying. In the Hebrew, it's a double negative. It's meant to be doubly emphatic. Do not be afraid is a command. And it's doubly emphatic, meaning stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. This word is almost angelic, isn't it? Do not be afraid. Doesn't it remind you of an echo through all of the scripture that when God's people come up against the backs, against the wall, when God's people get into a crisis down through the scriptures, this, that an angel will show up and say, do not be afraid. Like Gabriel who commands Mary to not be afraid when he appears to bring her the good news of Christ's birth. How often do we need to be told to not be afraid, to be commanded to not be afraid, especially now? Whether we're afraid for our life 
or whether we're afraid for our job. There's a lot of people afraid in this crisis. And here is the place to start when addressing fear. God commands us to emphatically not be afraid. Number two, Moses commands that they stand firm. If the command to not be afraid sounds so angelic in the scripture, the command to stand firm sounds so Pauline, doesn't it? I mean, Paul's word on spiritual warfare to having done all stand firm in Ephesians six is the exact same word that appears here. Paul ripped that off from Moses and he applied it to the Christian life. We don't have to give an inch. We don't shrink back in the Christian life. We stand firm. Fear not stand firm in the crisis And then third of all, third command, be still, be silent. This sounds so Psalm-like, doesn't it? Psalm 46 verses 10 and 11, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on all of the earth, God says. And so then his people respond, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So be still, the text says, Moses calls, and and watch, look, behold, see what's going to happen. You won't need to fight, just be still. Those are great commands. And then God's leader moves to comfort them. The comfort of the assurance of this truth. God will save you. God will save you. Now, ordinarily, standing firm and standing still is a disastrous defensive tactic in war. But in the Israelites' case, they had only to stand still in military formation. Why? Because God had brought them to this point. God was the one who put their backs against the wall. God was the one that took them down this winding path. He brought them there, and now he will save them there. That's a comfort for where God's taken you on your path. And then Moses says, God will fight for you. God will fight for you in this battle. God would be the divine warrior. God's people were not soldiers in this fight. They were spectators in this fight. All they would need to do was place all of their hope in God. All they would need to do is be confident in his power to save them from death. All they would have to do is with the eye of faith, watch God do all of the work of salvation. Brothers and sisters, the same holds true for our salvation from sin today. Our great enemies pursue us, sin, the world, Satan himself. But instead of shrinking back in fear, we need simply to take our stand and see the salvation of our God. Christianity is not about something that we can do to be victorious in our own strength or our own cunning. It's about what Christ has done through his death and his resurrection. Christ has accomplished on his own merit, in his own person and work everything necessary for our salvation. He has atoned for our sin. He has turned aside God's wrath. He has secured your righteousness in his sinless life. And he has gained entrance for you into everlasting life after the grave. When someone asks, what do I have to do to be saved? The answer is, you don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. We just need to look to him to bring us through. Look, your recent course in life may seem to have moved three steps backward. I get it. Life may have seemed to have backed you into a corner right now in this crisis. I get it. The enemy may be pursuing you hotly right now. 
in your sin, the flesh, the world, the devil. I get it. But there is a way of escape. God has led you to this exact spot. He will not depart from you now. He will fight for you. Wait upon him. Hope in Christ. And he will save you. Can I just encourage us to remember that we're living in a time when it takes no skill at all to lose your patience. It takes no skill at all to complain and no skill at all to lash out. The world is filled right now with people like that. But a mature veteran soldier of Christ is the one who stands firm in the place of fear and is still in the face of the enemy's charge. And why not? Why wouldn't he be? The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Well, we are out of time. We'll have to close out here and pick up where we left off next time. Here on Walk Through the Word with Pastor Kent Dresdo, broadcast ministry of North Creek Church here in Walnut Creek. If you would like to know a bit more about Pastor Kent or North Creek Church, we invite you to visit our website, walkthroughtheword.com. That's walkthroughtheword.com. You can also join us each weekday at the same time as Pastor Kent opens his Bible, teaches directly from God's Word. Also, if you are in the greater East Bay or Walnut Creek area, we'd invite you to visit us at North Creek Church. In fact, consider this an official invitation, especially if you are not involved in a church at this time. We'd love to experience worship with you together. Our mission is to build Christians that worship God, walk in love, and witness to the world. You can click on the North Creek Church link at walkthroughtheword.com for directions and service times. And if you do join us, would you let one of the ushers know you were invited by the radio broadcast? That would help us out a great deal. If you've been encouraged and blessed by the teaching today, we invite you to help sustain this ministry through your prayers and your prayerful monthly giving. You can visit us at walkthroughtheword.com or northcreek.org. Join us next time as together we take another Walk Through the Word with Pastor Kent Dresden. Walk Through the Word is the ministry of North Creek Church here in Walnut Creek. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.